Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, we believe that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. That is, his return could occur at any moment. We, with the Apostle Paul, look for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, that's Titus chapter 2, verse 13, knowing that the Lord could come back today helps us to be prepared, but some are tempted to stop what they are doing and just wait for him. Well, Jimmy, the Lord certainly tells us to continue to uh, work towards his appearance and his coming. And, you know, as we look at the signs that are taking place all around us, something that we do on this program every week, we are encouraged that the end is near. But, of course, that should give us uh, not a chance to just sit on our blessed assurance, as you might say, (laughs) but actually to uh, give you a sense of urgency to reach the world. Yes, and looking for his appearance, we get a crown for that, and that's what we help the body of Christ to understand. And Rick, you're so right on that. Well, let's get ready for today's program because, folks, buckle up. We've got a lot to cover, and it's just amazing how God works because our broadcast partners today are going to be talking about replacement theology. Dr. Paul Weaver will join with us along with Paul Scharf and our regulars, Ken Timmerman and David Dolan. Let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Ken Timmerman again with us today. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and analyst. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's my pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Well, Ken, we typically have our choice of hotspots around the world to begin with. This week, we'll choose North Korea, and they've been making waves, had a demonstration, a parade, touting their nuclear ability. Can you talk about that? Well, the North Koreans have been building up their missile capabilities for a number of years. They claim now, Rick, to have ICBMs that can reach the United States from North Korea, the continental United States from North Korea. Uh, They haven't really demonstrated that range, but this is what they say. And uh, what you're referring to here is a recent military parade in Pyongyang, where they showed at a single time in a single photo. So this was actually captured by satellite. Uh, You can find it as an extraordinary picture. You can find it on the Internet with 12 Hwasong-17 ICBM missiles. These are uh, ground launch missiles. They're on these missile launchers that roll along, uh, you know, 18 wheels, something like that. And they're going two by two down the central square of Pyongyang where they have these military parades. And each of those missiles is said to carry four warheads. That is, you know, around 48 warheads. The United States has a total, a total of 44 ground-based interceptors that we could launch against North Korean missiles from Alaska or California. We have a very, very limited ground-based missile intercept force. It was designed for a handful of missiles from North Korea. So with this single parade, the North Koreans have demonstrated that they have more than enough missiles to overwhelm our entire national missile defense capability. And, you know, what's what's extraordinary about this, Rick, is that it sometimes takes an absolute disaster for nations to wake up and recognize their um, the loopholes in their defense. I was in uh, Israel during the 2006 war when Hezbollah was launching thousands of rockets uh, and missiles into Israel. Up until that time, the Israeli defense establishment didn't want to hear about missile defense. They didn't want to hear about uh, any kind of systems, uh, very costly systems that would take money away from their offensive 
capabilities, new tanks, new aircraft, new helicopters. Well, after they had 4,400 missiles rocket into the towns, uh, they emptied out Haifa, people were living underground, they even reached into the northern outskirts of Tel Aviv. After that, the defense establishment changed their tune. And today, not all that much later, you know, 16 years later, Israel now has the best uh, missile defense capabilities of any nation on Earth, much, much better than the United States, and a layered missile defense. They can get long-range missiles, medium-range missiles, and they can even intercept things like mortars. So the United States is way behind that. We, we have believed for generations that we are uh, in a sanctuary behind our two oceans, but the North Koreans have just proved that potentially wrong. Well, Ken, in response to this parade, the United States launched an unarmed ICBM into the Pacific Ocean. Why would they have done that? I would uh, explain that as uh, old think, a demonstration that our military is stuck in the mutually assured destruction uh, strategies of the Cold War. We're not going to fight North Korea launching nuclear weapons on U.S. soil by wiping out their cities with a second strike, a nuclear second strike. They couldn't care less about that. And besides, they have a lot of underground capabilities. They would probably survive that, and we would have taken millions of casualties. Nevertheless, the U.S. saw fit to demonstrate that our nuclear retaliatory capabilities are intact, that the missiles can go the distance. Uh, This one traveled 4,200 miles, a lot longer than the North Koreans have ever demonstrated, uh, because we could fire from uh, California, from the Vandenberg uh, Space Force base in California, all the way out to the Kwajalein Islands in the Pacific. But again, I would call this old think. This is the mutually assured destruction strategy. Well, Ken, then I would like to ask you quickly an opinion question. We seem to forget about North Korea, uh, but every few months, every six months or a year, you hear a nuclear threat or a new nuclear uh, information coming out of North Korea that gives us cause for concern. And some of what you said in your previous answer is a little ominous. Uh, how worried should we be? What would you consider the, the, the proper level of worrying, the threat level that comes out of North Korea right now? Well, I think we have to keep our eyes on North Korea, and it's and it's always uh, tempting to forget them when they don't do outrageous things. They like to provoke uh, the uh, young Kim and his father. They like to provoke. They like to uh, fire off nuclear weapons, to test nuclear weapons, generally with the goal of getting U.S. aid or some kind of assistance from the United States for their people. In this case, what worries me much more than that, Rick, than the threat to the United States is what I heard uh, this week from South Korea. You had the South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, saying openly and publicly just uh, last month that North Korea's nuclear weapons capabilities, that their ability to fire off these large numbers of cruise missiles and perhaps shorter range missiles against the South Korean homeland, he said, it's possible that the problem gets worse in our country, South Korea, will introduce tactical nuclear weapons or build them on our own. He said, if that's the case, we can have our own nuclear weapons pretty quickly, given our scientific and technological capabilities. Absolutely true statement, by the way, but something that the United States has tried to avoid for decades. This is what's called nuclear proliferation. Mm -hmm. And we have tried to keep countries like South Korea and Japan from developing nuclear weapons by extending our nuclear umbrella over them. 
Will the U.S. deploy tactical nuclear weapons? Is that what the South Korean president was referring to? Don't know. But he certainly made a very clear statement about their ability to develop nuclear weapons should they feel the United States is not defending them. Well, these are obviously very serious uh, thoughts and opinions that you're giving here. And, of course, we need to keep an eye on this area. So much going on in all the different theaters around the world. But, of course, we don't want to overlook this. Well, I mentioned that I also wanted to talk about China in this segment here. And last week we talked about the spy balloon. It was at the beginning of the story last week. Well, apparently that story's run its full cycle. I would just like for you to give us a postmortem. What is the quote-unquote fallout of the spy balloon? the Chinese spy balloon? Well, it's worth repeating that you had some of the national media citing an unnamed Pentagon official claiming that this had happened two or three times during the Trump administration and the Trump White House did nothing. Now that's, that itself is an incredible admission, if true. But then you had the president of the United States, his secretary of defense, his two directors of national intelligence, two national security advisors, all of them named, all of them going on the public record and saying that never happened. It never happened. We were never briefed. And uh, some people are trying to repeat these stories and say, well, they were never briefed. They never took it seriously. No, they were never briefed. If it actually happened that these kind of balloons went over the United States during the Trump administration and the military never told the president of the United States or his top national security and intelligence team, that is just unbelievable. I mean, it's an unbelievable dereliction of duty. Some people have called it treason. It's hard to believe that that could have happened. So you have either lying all the way through the current administration, lying about what's happened, or you have a president of the United States, President Biden, who did not have the resolve to take action early on, either when the balloon was over the Aleutian Islands in Alaska or when it was in Montana, where, by the way, there are more cows than people. So there wasn't really a great risk of hitting somebody on the ground. <laughs> and, and, and now this week, we've learned that uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, tried to activate this uh, hotline, this uh, red telephone between uh, the Pentagon and the military establishment in Beijing right after shooting down the balloon. And the Chinese never picked up. They just never answered. Uh, they have they are thumbing their noses at us. Their rhetoric this week has been extremely violent towards the United States. They are blaming us for shooting down their sovereign property. They ought to be looking for the for the biggest hole they can possibly jump in and pull the trapdoor over top of them uh, because they have been caught spying on us. But shame on us. We didn't shoot it down. Well, we appreciate that wrap-up of that story, and I tend to agree with what you're saying there. We certainly need to be vigilant because their intentions sometimes seem very clear, and we're not taking them serious. Well, Ken, I would like to continue our conversation, and I would like to talk about this large-scale Russian offensive, very concerning, something that uh, I think you'll have a lot to talk to us about. But before that, we're going to need to take a break. Yes, and when we come back, Rick, we're going to talk to David Dolan in a minute, but I do want to remind our folks to pray for the people of Turkey. 22,000 and counting. What a terrible tragedy has taken place in the country of Turkey and Syria. One of those things that uh, indicative in the end times will be the earthquakes that take place. And this just gives us a little reminder of the urgency of the hour to be about telling others about Jesus Christ and what he has done for the world. Let's take a break right here on Prophecy Today weekend. 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Across five crumbled cities in Turkey and Syria, the earthquake death toll is still rising. We now know as of last press time, over 20,000 people have died. Mike Patino, COO of Global Catalytic Ministries, says they have three teams in Turkey providing rescue support and emergency aid. They hope the Lord will use them to open disciple-making opportunities in a closed country. Pray for protection amidst trauma, both for quake survivors and first responders. And supporters from around the world gathered recently to applaud a Transworld Radio milestone. Forty-five years after its first radio broadcast, TWR India celebrates biblical content in 150 languages. More than a 1,000 people attended the get-together, including representatives from the 150 language groups. You can help TWR India begin the next chapter, Radio Home Groups. They're like small group Bible studies, but with audio. Mission Network News is service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, you join us in the middle of a conversation with Ken Timmerman, our expert on geopolitical affairs. Ken, I'd like to talk about the Ukrainian crisis. There is a large-scale offensive planned by Russia, and they're going to be using Iranian drones and missiles. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? They are, because uh, artillery and missiles and drones the, uh, it's what the Russians have the most of, especially the artillery shells. Uh, they are going into kind of World War II mode here, Rick. We've heard a lot of talk about the coming offensive. It has begun in a small way in the eastern part of Ukraine. They've, they've surrounded Bakut, which is an important uh, crossroads and a resupply line for the Ukrainians. They've hit uh, tried to uh, take back territory uh, in other parts of the Donbass. Uh, and they're just throwing, uh, you know, the reports that I've seen on the ground from people who are embedded with the Ukrainians near the front lines. They're just throwing troops, many of them mercenaries from the Wagner group uh, against the Ukrainians in, in the hope that eventually some of them will get through. It's a very bloody affair. Uh, it is uh, extremely wasteful of human life, even on the Russian side. Uh, but we haven't yet seen the massive 200,000 troop offensive that they've been talking about uh, that could be coming in the weeks to come. What I'm really worried about uh, most here is, is really what the, believe it or not, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, said this past week. He said, the world is not sleepwalking 
into a wider war. They are walking into it with their eyes wide open. The mm. possibilities for escalation here are just enormous. We've evoked this several times already. Uh, Ukraine clearly would like the war to expand into surrounding NATO countries, so NATO will then uh, evoke Article five. And it seems that the Biden administration is OK with that. Uh, you know, the I, I read an, an analysis by an old friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Bryan. Recently, he was a deputy undersecretary of defense uh, during the Reagan administration. And he said he, he traced the the uh, history, the recent history of attempts to negotiate with Putin uh, just before the war and after the war began. And he said the U.S. never, never sought to negotiate. Uh, there was one point where Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, went to um, uh, went to Moscow and, and uh, Moscow then to Berlin to brief European leaders. And he thought he had a, a plan where they could back down and, and, and stop the war early on. And then it was the U.S. that put the kibosh on it. The U.S., the Biden administration, did not want a negotiated end to this war. And it just makes me uh, wonder, Rick, whether we are being led by the party of permanent war here now in Washington. Well, can I have certainly kind of felt that myself as well. Interesting to hear you uh, say that. And uh, we'll keep an eye on this. I, we certainly do believe that the aggression by Russia was not necessary. And Putin was certainly an autocratic dictator. Amazing, Ken. Well, it's as if the pages of Bible prophecy are coming to life right before our eyes. Well, we appreciate you so much keeping an eye on what's taking place in the world for us. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Ken Timmerman, you can go to Ken. Timmerman.com. There you can find out about his many books, including his memoirs, his latest book, and the rest is history, tales of hostages, arms dealers, dirty tricks, and spies. Very interesting and informative read. Ken, thank you so much for all that you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Ken. You know, a lot of people ask us, how do we know, Rick, what uh, countries to focus on? as we take a look at geopolitical events in the world. And uh, it's called inductive Bible study. We take information from Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, Zechariah, the 17 minor prophets written by 16 different authors. So as we do this, this helps us to understand how we can focus on the nations that we do. One of the nations that we focus on is Israel. That we do in our Middle East News Update. Well, this is our Middle East News Update segment of the program. And with us, as always, we have our good friend, journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you always. Well, Dave, the big news coming out of the Middle East this week is, of course, the tragic news of the earthquake that hit both Turkey and Syria, hit along the border there. David, could you tell us what's the latest in that situation? Well, yes, Rick, and it was very strongly felt in parts of Israel as well. It's not very far away, northern Syria, from Israel, just a few hundred miles to the north, as you know. It struck, of course, early in the week, uh, two quakes pretty much in a row, 7.8, which is an extremely strong earthquake, followed by a 7.5, which is itself a very strong earthquake. As of Thursday, they were saying they had 20,000 dead, but we're expecting many, many more uh, bodies to be uncovered in the coming weeks. And if it's anything like Haiti, the huge earthquake there, the seven-point earthquake there in 2010, uh, there will be many aftershocks of this large quake. They had over 50 
in Haiti. So people continued to have to live outside uh, to because their buildings were weakened in that. Of course, Haiti, and it was in January, it's warm there, even in January. It's not warm at all right now in Turkey and Syria. There's been snow. It's extremely cold. And thousands of people are living outside of their either destroyed or leaning buildings or you know tottering buildings. Uh, many buildings came down in Aleppo in northwestern Syria, which had been heavily bombed, of course, by Russia, uh, using these horrible barrel bombs during the war there from uh, 2014 on. They, they were using those. They lost a lot of people in buildings. A lot of the Druze community have a lot of deaths. There's uh, nearly 100 Palestinians dead that we know of so far, Rick. There's several Palestinian. They originally were refugee camps, but now they're basically just Palestinian neighborhoods in uh, near Aleppo and several other locations. They had building collapses also and people killed. So a very tragic situation. And as I said, it was pretty strongly felt in northern Israel, Haifa in particular people pretty much all felt it. Even further south in Tel Aviv, there's videos of buildings swaying, Rick, in the quake. And uh, the northern town of Beit Shan, I mentioned that last week, that the new national water carrier branch to Jordan is going through that town. It had enough damage that people are under a water boiling orders now. Their water system in the town was damaged and pollutants came in. So even in northern Israel. And then Israel had its own earthquake a day and a half later, Rick, uh, in uh, near Ariel, the town of Ariel, north of Jerusalem. But it was only a 3.5 quake. But uh, this is, of course, the whole area going from northern Syria, southern Turkey, all the way down to central Africa is what is known as the Syrian-African Rift. And as you know, it's a highly earthquake-prone split in the earth, basically. The lowest part of it, of course, is the Dead Sea right outside of Jerusalem. So the Israelis know that they are in line for such an earthquake someday as as, um, other areas along that rift. So very uh, difficult days indeed. Certainly is difficult days, David, and I am sure that our thoughts and prayers should be with the people of Turkey, the people of Syria, and all the people that are the devastated loss of life that and people that are suffering right now because of this earthquake. Well, David, uh, as they often do, Israel put together a delegation, and they actually are very uh, a very skilled delegation as they go out to help in emergencies and crisis all over the world, but now they're going to uh, maybe some neighbors, sometimes they've been allies, sometimes they've uh, been sworn enemies, but they are now going to help uh, there in Turkey. They are, Rick, and it is, as you say, a tradition in the Israeli military uh, and governments to send aid as quickly as they can. And actually, an advance party was there by Monday night. The earthquakes took place earlier on Monday, so they were one of the first to arrive. And then the next day, they sent a delegation of 150 uh, doctors, nurses, and engineers, and people involved in digging up rubble. Of course, sadly, Israel has a lot of experience of that from its wars, mainly, but also from some previous 
earthquakes. They sent those along, and they're they're setting up a field hospital. Now, all this, of course, is happening on the Turkish side of this uh, disaster. Israel has no relations at all with Syria. It's in an official state of war with Syria, and the Syrians would shoot them <laughs> if they showed up. So it's on the Turkish side, but they're giving as much aid as they can. You mentioned earlier before the program, Rick, that the Israelis do this partly to keep themselves uh, rehearsed for the eventual massive earthquake that will hit them, it seems, someday. And I think that is true. But they are also, of course, a humanitarian society. They have ties all over the world. And Israel was one of the most commended countries in the Haiti earthquake aftermath. They sent several field hospitals and uh, over a thousand people. And of course, they'll send more aid to uh, this earthquake in Turkey, I'm sure, as well. But they're already right there amongst the first countries to be helping the people in this disaster and trying to save as many lives as possible. Of course, we're now at the point where we won't probably have many more people found alive. And if the earth Aftershocks continue, we may add uh, to that death toll. Well, that certainly is correct, David. Many don't know that Israel does sit along a massive fault line, and maybe some of the information and uh, rescue-type operation that they're doing right now may benefit them someday as well. Rick, we got to take a break, but when we come back, let's ask Dave about the political situation right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, I when Dave was finishing up talking about the earthquake and how Israel sits on a fault line, you know, one of the questions that's always asked, because we talk about the Dome of the Rock being on the Temple Mount, the place where the next temple will stand. The Jews are not going to allow uh, the temple to stand next to the Dome of the Rock. And people always ask, well, how will the Dome of the Rock disappear? How will it be gone? And of course, when we talk about it, we talk about Israel sitting on that Syrian-African rift valley that fault line that runs from syria and the north to africa north africa and the south and that's something that israel really needs to be on top of it certainly is and you know and as we've been there you know how uh, serious they are about uh preparing for a potential disaster when it comes to the earthquakes and of course as we also talk about on our trips they haven't had one in quite a while. It's uh, They're actually past their due date for a time to have an earthquake. So that is something that could take place. Very interesting to think about how that might be the way they prepare and clear the way for the Dome of the Rock 
to be gone from that spot there on the Temple Mount and the rebuilding of the third temple, as told in Daniel. As it goes with earthquakes, I saw an article that said that this latest earthquake really shifted the axis of the earth. So that's interesting because in the future, there's going to be a major earthquakes where continents will shift according to Bible prophecy laid out in the book of Revelation. Well, let's get started. We want to get back to David Dolan because we've got to talk some politics in Israel. We have Dave Dolan with us. We're continuing on with our conversation. And as you know, the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And so we certainly want to look at Israeli politics. And there are some changing dynamics right now in Israeli politics that are in the news today. One of them is bills being offered to uh, maybe can potentially halt this judicial review that we've talked about and maybe bring back a controversial minister. Well, yes, Rick, the uh, beginning of the Knesset sessions, each new Knesset is when new bills are presented to a committee that looks them over and decides whether they're worth even passing on to the full Knesset. That's how it works in Israel's uh, system. Well, tomorrow, Sunday, that committee meets, and so there's been all sorts of uh, new bills proposed by the government that have been discussed. And amongst them, as you say, is one that would basically allow the prime minister to appoint Arya Derry, the head of the Shas party, uh, to the government. Of course, he did appoint him as interior minister, and then the Supreme Court ruled no. He has a previous criminal record. Well, it was tax evasion charges that he overcame, but uh, pleaded uh, guilty to those. So he can't serve their saying. So uh, the Netanyahu government's trying to get a bill passed that would allow him to be appointed. And meanwhile, Rick Derry's in the news for another bill that his party proposed that would very much strengthen the religious control over the Western Wall, the Temple Mount's Western Wall, the Wailing Wall to many people. Uh, It would ban immodest clothing, especially on women, uh, whatever they would deem that. The bill also said it would ban musical instruments or singing, and it would ban mixed prayer meetings, men and women together. Now, those only occur today not along the Western Wall proper that uh, the world sees, but further south along the wall in the Davidson Center, it's hidden from the other area. But in that area, they do allow men and women and reform Jews and, you know, non-Jews, Christian groups to go sing. And all of that happens, but further south, this would ban that as well. Well, the prime minister on Thursday morning came out and said, no way, no, this isn't going to happen. We're not going to touch the status quo at all at the uh, Western Wall. And so, Shots, we don't support this bill in the government. You can present it, but it will just be a minority of the government that would support it. But he hinted that someday, when things are a little bit different politically, he would support to strengthening some of the especially the modesty clauses, as they're called. Those are very important to Shas. As I've said before, they're not so much into the Judea and Samaria question and those sorts of issues, but they very much see themselves, as their name is, the guardians of the Torah party. So that's what they see their job as, and as some see them as the Taliban of Israel. But at any rate, this bill apparently will be going nowhere uh, right away. 
Well, it may be going nowhere, David, but it does signify the kind of growing divide, and we've talked about it on this program before, the polarization uh, between the religious and the non-religious, and of course this new government uh, with its divide between the religious and the non-religious. This, is, uh, this just typifies what may be in the future for Israel. Well, it's been going on forever, really. I mean, ever since I moved to Israel in 1980, there were these rifts and, you know, should Orthodox men serve in the army? That comes up periodically. And the modesty rules not only at the Western Wall, but in Israeli cities and towns, Orthodox areas in particular often come up. So these divides have been there a long, long time. But of course, the Western Wall is a special site, not just because of historical things that happened there and that it's part of the historic Temple Mount. But of course, as you know, it's not only a religious center for Orthodox Jews to go pray, but it's a nationalistic center where the army holds a lot of its ceremonies and inducts soldiers and where tour groups come up all the time of secular Israelis. So it's important to all Israelis and therefore, you know, any attempt to change what's there now is is going to be controversial. Of course, it doesn't help, Rick, that the so-called Women of the Wall, that's a female liberal group that's, uh, for again, decades been in the news. They are pushing for a mixed male-female prayer area in the main part of the Temple Mount, not just south as it is today. And they are petitioning the Supreme Court on that uh, right now. So that doesn't that doesn't calm the religious uh you know, views at all. It just stirs them up further. So yes, there's some deep divisions over this question, but it's the unique Jewish state of Israel. It certainly is. And we know that these things all have prophetic implications as you look at them on down the road. Well, my final question and the last question that we have time for, leaders of Hamas uh, met in Cairo and basically uh, they met with a delegation of senior Egyptian intelligence officials and they expressed their unhappiness with the new government in Israel, especially the two gentlemen that we've talked about quite a bit, Smotrich and Ben Gavir. Can you tell us about this visit, what it means and what it means for all the Palestinian different factions that are vying for power in the Palestinian areas? Uh, Well, actually, Rick, it came two days after an Islamic Jihad delegation. That, of course, is the Iranian fully-backed group. Uh, Hamas is partly backed by Iran as well, but uh, they were also in Cairo. And both uh, delegations' uh, leaders said the same thing, that uh, this is a, you know, racist government in Israel, and we we, you know, don't have any intention of doing anything with them. And, uh, you know, these new ministers, as you said, Ben Gavir and Smotrich are so and so and so on and on. Well, there's nothing new in this, Rick. I mean, the Hamas charter calls for Israel's total destruction, not the destruction of Likud governments or right wing parties in Israel, but of all of Israel. That's their founding charter. They adhere to it. Islamic Jihad is just as extreme in their positions, and nothing has changed in this. And it's, of course, why the uh, Egyptians are constantly uh, mediating, uh, and that's the reason these delegations were there. They were trying to get their take in Cairo of what they're thinking right now in case there's another war. And um, they just repeated their hardline views. This is why Secretary of State Blinken's comment last week that, well, we got to keep that two-state solution somewhere in the air, although he hardly talked about it, as I said, because of the security situation. 
But, you know, it is the security situation that means there's no chance of there being a two-state solution. Hamas mm-hmm. controls the Gaza Strip. They want to control Judea and Samaria. Uh, the opinion polls show if there ever is another Palestinian election for president, they will win it. So the peace process is over. It's basically dead. The Israelis recognize that. And I think the Egyptians do as well. And, you know, these are just the statements that you're bound to get out of these radical groups. Well, David, we appreciate you explaining that to us because narratives that you hear in the mainstream media around the world don't necessarily uh, portray that correctly. And we appreciate you telling that to us. And as always, in everything, David, we are grateful for all that you do to keep our listeners informed. Excellent report today. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm grateful to be able to do it, Rick. God bless. Thank you, David. And we are very grateful for your insight for us and for our listeners. Well, our next interview, Dr. Paul Weaver has a podcast, Bible Theology Matters, and I really enjoy it. I've been putting it on our PTR radio, PTRN radio, Prophecy Today radio network, and he joins us today on the program. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Dr. Paul Weaver with us. He's a good friend of our ministries, good friend of our families, somebody that we've partnered with in ministry over these many years. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary right now, but we have known him for many years, much of the part-time with our association with Word of Life Hungry Bible Institute, a ministry overseas in Tuamish, Hungary. And uh, Dr. Weaver, first of all, thank you for being back on the program. It's great to be here. Always love to have a conversation with you and uh, your brother. And thank you for the privilege to speak to your listeners. And then also, Dr. Weaver, I know you just got back from Hungary. I contacted you last week asking you to be on the program. You just got back from Hungary. You were teaching there. What is it like to go back to the place where you ministered so many years? Oh, it's always a joy. I love the team. Uh, Great friends there. Uh, It's been 20 years since I left my master's degree here at Dallas Seminary. Went over there 20 years ago and stayed for 13 years. Loved uh, directing the school and before that academic dean. And it's great to be back. I haven't been back since COVID. I was in uh, Ukraine teaching, actually, when I received word. I was planning to go to Hungary the week after to teach at the Bible Institute in Hungary when I received word that Uh, President Trump was closing all flights from Europe, and so I needed to get on a flight back. And so um, it hasn't been since then that I've been back to Hungary, so I'm so glad to have been able to serve there. I taught two very important books relating to prophecy, the book of 1 Thessalonians, dealing with the rapture of the church, and 2 Thessalonians, dealing with the day of the Lord or the time of God's uh, judgment on the world and drawing Israel back to their first love. And the students there were from Hungary, Romania, Greece, Egypt. I had a student from Turkey, Poland, United States, and even Brazil. So it was a great week. Well, Dr. Weaver, I know that it's great that we have technology in the world today and we could do Zoom calls and we could have these video classes. And that is a way that we can evangelize. But there's nothing like being there in person. I know my dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and you facilitated this. He would go to Hungary just about every year to teach a different prophetic book of the Bible. And it's so important. I mean, it's just your ability to be there to interact with the kids, to eat dinner with them when they go to dinner and all those things. I'm so glad that we are able to travel again. Well, I'm calling you today because you have a podcast. Now, I know you're a teacher and you're a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, but you have a podcast. And the podcast is 
the Bible and theology matters. And then, then your tagline is because what you believe determines how you behave. I think this is such a great podcast. Could you talk a little bit about that? Tell our listeners, first of all, where they can find it, but just what your goal was in putting this podcast together. Well, thank you for that. I, I love to talk about the Bible. I love to talk about theology, but this is obviously double entendre because Bible and theology really does matter uh, because what you really believe, not not what you say you believe, but what you really believe determines how you really behave. And we see that in Paul's epistles. Paul taught about the doctrine of the church in Ephesians before he talked about the behavior of the church or duty of the church. He talked about the belief of the church in Romans concerning condemnation and justification and sanctification before he talked about the application of that. So what you really believe impacts how you really behave. And so we love to talk about different issues of Bible and theology. It's available on most any podcast platform that your listeners, maybe those that are listening right now on the podcast uh, platform, can listen to it most anywhere, or you can go to BibleAndTheologyMatters.com. We also have a YouTube channel. Well, that's wonderful, and I encourage all of our listeners to go there. There is a large catalog, I think close to 50 or even more now, of different episodes or or, or series that you have done, and so there's so so much great information there. I'd like to zero in on one just for the sake of this conversation, but I encourage our listeners to go and check out all of them. But we're talking about you looked at the biblical theology of Romans, And we were talking about uh, the restoration of Israel, basically centering around Romans 11. If you could, one of the questions that you look at is, the first question, I guess, that you would answer is, is God done with the nation of Israel? Uh, That is a very important question, but quite frankly, who cares what Paul Weaver thinks? But let me tell you, in the words of Paul the Apostle, (laughs) Paul the Apostle says, by no means is God done with Israel. By no means, or may it never be, right? And so I believe in a future for national ethnic Israel because the Apostle Paul teaches that to be the case. And uh, God is not finished with Israel. Paul asks and answers that question, is God finished with Israel? And the answer is no, by no means. Uh, Israel is a crucial part of God's plans and purposes for the future. In fact, our hope as Christians, our hope as it relates to the 1,000 year reign of Christ is bound up in the Jewish people. The kingdom Mm. will not be established until the Jewish people return to Yahweh and accept the Messiah. And so we do believe God has a plan and purpose for Israel. He's not finished with them. And our hope, our certainty of that coming millennial kingdom is bound up in the Jewish people. One of the popular ideas today is that the church has replaced Israel, and there are different denominations, different sets of beliefs that people have. But I mean, I, I'll i tell you this, I go to a large Baptist denomination, which has for some time been the bastion of the philosophy, that the, the pre-trib philosophy, and the idea that God is not done with the nation of Israel. But there are some people even there that are looking at it, they're reading these books that they can find from different places, and they're saying, listen, from the way I see it, the church has replaced Israel. Yeah, that's a a problem. (laughs) When we look at Scripture, I think from the beginning to end, some people in some of the denominations you're referencing think in terms of the the main overarching purpose of God for human history is the election or the redemption of God's elect. And, And while redemption or salvation is very important, it's a really incredibly important theme in Scripture, 
God's purpose for human history goes far before that. Um, before sin entered the world, we find God's purpose found in Genesis 1, that God created us to rule as his image bearers, and the fall thwarted that temporarily, but that God chose to use a family that becomes a nation, the family being that of Abraham's family, and makes a covenant with Abraham that's promised in Genesis 12 and then repeated and solidified in a unconditional covenant between God and Abraham, so much so that God puts Abraham asleep and walks alone through the, the dead carcasses of animals cut in half, this blood covenant, which God walks between and Abraham is asleep to signify that this is an unconditional covenant, that God uh, will be faithful to the nation of Israel and faithful to the Jewish people, even if they're not faithful to him. And the word chesed, mm. or loyal love or faithful kindness, that is the, the word that uh, that represents or is an attribute, uh, attribute of God, that he, he is faithful even when his people are faithless. And so the Jewish people, certainly, at, uh, specifically the, the religious leaders, um, we're, we can look in the history of the Hebrew Bible, and it's not uh, anti-Semitic to say that um, the Jewish people at points of time were were not faithful to what the prophets came and delivered to them and the call of God. Um, um, but one day they will, right? And uh, God, it's not about will God be faithful to the promises he made, it's about when. And it's not contingent upon um, even the nation of Israel. God will draw Israel back to him in the coming tribulation. And we'll talk more about that, I think, here in a little bit. Well, that's right. And I mean, I love the way you referenced the book of Genesis because the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation is consistent. It has a plan and it all agrees from the very beginning to the very end. But God had a plan in place from the very beginning. And how does this promised restoration of Israel fit into the plan? It should give us confidence as believers, right? Yes, for sure. And that's a great point. So if the millennial kingdom doesn't happen if the thousand-year reign of Christ doesn't happen, then then God has been thwarted. Then Satan has won. But from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God created man to rule as his image bearers. And Adam was to do that as a microcosm there in the Garden of Eden. Sin thwarted that. God chose a nation to be a kingdom of priests in the Jewish people. And God made a promise and covenant with Abraham. That's only finally realized in Revelation 20, well, during the tribulation where 144,000 uh, Jewish people are enlightened, 12,000 from each tribe, and they become messengers to preach the good news of the kingdom again. And many come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. And at the end of that day of wrath, at the end of that period of judgment on the world, the wicked nations that are they're persecuting Israel, Christ will return and will establish his kingdom. So if the the key theme of scripture is not the salvation of the elect, the key theme of scripture is not the uh, salvation of, of people, the key theme of scripture is the kingdom, uh, which will be finally realized and fulfilled uh, when the nation of Israel as a whole ethnic Israel accepts the Messiah and this 1000 year reign of Christ that's mentioned six times in the book of Revelation uh, will be 
realized and the purpose of God for human history to have his imago Dei, the people who are created in the image of God to accomplish what he created them to do to rule as his image bearer and Christ will do that. He will rule from the throne of David and we're thankful Romans 8, 16 and 17, we get the privilege to rule and reign with him as co-heirs with Christ. Mm, Dr. Weaver, such great information. Well, I'd like to continue on, and we have uh, only a brief time here. Like I said, I would like to encourage our listeners to go and to listen to your podcast. You have a four-part series on the biblical theology of Romans. We're just looking at one little part. You have great content, great information there. But let's look at uh, Romans 11.25. And there are some things here that are pertinent to the conversation that we're having right now. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Could you explain that? Just give our listeners a little idea of what that means. Yeah, great. So first of all, we have this interesting word, uh, Greek word that's translated uninformed or uh, unaware. And this is the same word that Paul uses in First Thessalonians when he talks about the rapture, that I don't want you brethren to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery. And that Greek word mystery is musterion, idea of something in the Old Testament that's not been completely revealed to the people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, but that through later revelation becomes evident. And so just as the church, Ephesians is a mystery musterion, just as the rapture of that church is a mystery musterion, Paul is now going to share with them more understanding concerning this partial hardening that's taken place. And of course, after Paul asks and answers that question, is God done with Israel? He clearly says, no, by no means. I'm Jewish. There's a remnant of Jewish believers that God is calling uh, that are comprised of the church, Jews and Gentiles, one in Christ. But there will be a day in the future where uh, all Israel will be saved, Romans 11, 26. And so there's been a hardening effect for a period of time. Uh, we do see some Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. We Paul continued to go to the synagogues and preach to the Jewish people first. Um, and we're thankful for ministries that uh, your family and, and your father partnered with, like Friends of Israel, who are committed to taking the gospel to the Jewish people. But the author, Paul, tells us that there's been a hardening. We don't see as many Jewish people come to faith in Christ as we'd like. And, but there's a day, in the, and I believe it's at the end of the tribulation, that God uses this period of time, the 144,000 witnesses and the two witnesses, to preach the good news of the kingdom. And the Jewish people, the ethnic Israel, will accept the Messiah and be saved, and Christ will return and save them from their oppressors, the wicked nations coming against them. As we continue on in this discussion, we go to verse 26, and it says, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, kind of what you're saying now, that's a literal interpretation. How exactly would you explain that to our listeners? Yes, I do take, I don't see anything in the text that cause us to not take it literally. Uh, you know, Charles Ryrie would often say, if common sense makes the most sense, seek no other sense. And what I think is happening here, this is the prophecy that's being fulfilled, not only of their salvific, their eternal salvation, that uh, all Israel will be coming coming to faith at the end of the tribulation. doesn't mean everybody in the tribulation did come to faith, but at the end of it, those the Jewish people, I think all of Israel will be saved in a uh, spiritual, eternal life sense but also they will be saved in the sense that Jesus Christ is going to return 
And during the tribulation, the, the Antichrist is going to turn on Israel. He's going to break his covenant with her and lead a revolt against them. And all the nations will come against Israel. And Christ is going to return and save ethnic Israel from their oppressors. Well, my final question, because I know our time is short. There are many people uh, that I know, and some that I even go to Bible studies with, and they'll talk about, you know, why is it so important that we understand God's Word when it comes to eschatology? I mean, we believe in the doctrine of salvation. We believe you call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. Yes, and certainly that is a foundation of what we believe. But eschatology is important as well. Can you explain why it is important and why we should be studying Bible prophecy and eschatology? Well, I remember uh, your father often saying, I think 27% of the scripture, I might have that statistic wrong, but at the time of writing, it's very close to that, where uh, it was all, it was prophetic at the time. And so clearly prophecy is important to God, needs to be important to us from just the amount of material proportionately to what's found in it. Certainly God has revealed himself to us and what his plans and purposes for for us and for Israel. And so we wanna study that and know it clearly, but it also shows the faithfulness of God, right? That God is faithful to his promises. If he's faithful to the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and their descendants, we can be certain that he'll be faithful to the promises he's made to mm. us, to the church. Mm. On the contrary, if he's not faithful to the promises he made to those people groups, then then we have problems. And I think God is a loyal, faithful God who's faithful to fulfill what he's promised both to the nation of Israel and to us. Dr. Weaver, I love your thoughtful and easy-to-understand explanations. Guys, you can find more of this if you go to his website. One more time, if they just want, what's the page? If they want to go and find out and, and listen to some of the back issues of your podcast and different things like that, what's the best way for them to do that? Just go to BibleAndTheologyMatters.com. BibleAndTheologyMatters.com. Dr. Paul Weaver, he's a Dallas Theological Seminary professor. We appreciate you being on the program, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I love that interview with Dr. Paul Weaver and uh, his understanding and giving us some explanation as to why we should study Bible prophecy. That's right. And there's such great information there from Romans. And he ended up talking about, and we've had this conversation before on this program, why we should study Bible prophecy. And, and it's so important. I mean, it is there in the scripture that's over 25, 30% of the Bible, however you want to divide that out. But I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and you know, he wasn't necessarily excited about studying Bible prophecy. He focused on other parts of scripture and figured that Bible prophecy may be too confusing for him. Well, you know what? God put it in the Word for a reason, Jimmy. And I believe that with all my heart, I believe he gave us the whole story. He gave it to give us confidence. He gave it to give us a sense of urgency. And so it is there in the scripture. And there's certainly a reason for us to at least focus somewhat on eschatology and Bible prophecy. Well, years ago, uh, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, taught us what we have as an understanding today of Bible prophecy. That's really how we understand what to focus on. 
in the world events, geopolitical events, and the Jewish people and their program in the future, what God has for them, plus the Palestinians of today. Which leads me to talk about, we're going to continue our study of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's teaching on the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, in just a moment. But first, let me remind you that there has been a conflict going on between these two brothers for 4,000 years. This week in our study, Dr. DeYoung will trace the descendants of these two boys from the time of their separation to the times of Jesus, the family lines of these two brothers. Take your Bible and let's go to Genesis chapter 36, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. In chapters 36 and 37, we see something very interesting that will happen in the lives of these young men. The Lord is going to realize he's going to have to separate them. Chapter 37 and verse 1, notice what it says. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And so God is going to allow Jacob, as was his plan, the firstborn being served excuse me, serving the secondborn and the secondborn being the leader that will take the heritage of the family into the future. Chapter 36 gives us a bit of information about Esau. Now, these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. And by the way, Esau had his name also changed to Edom. Look what it says here in verse 6. And Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all of his beasts and all of his substance which he had got in the land of Canaan and went into a country from the face of his brother Jacob. Now why did these boys have to be separated? Look at verse 7. For their riches were more than that they might dwell together and the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. Now notice verse 8. It is key when we get to the prophetic passages. Verse 8, thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now that is key and it prophetically we'll understand it in just a few moments. Let me tell you where Mount Seir is located. Mount Seir is the lower third of modern day Jordan. The key city or the capital city of Mount Seir at that time and even today is a city called Petra the impregnable city in the lower third of modern-day Jordan. There are five mountain ranges that start at Mount Hermon in the northern part of Israel. They come down the Rift Valley, which you know as the uh, Jordan Valley. The Rift Valley starts in Syria, goes all the way down to Kenya, Africa. Uh, But they come down the valley. You have Mount Hermon, and that's not just one mountain, it's a mountain range. And then you have the Golan Heights. Now, Golan is a biblical term used four times in the Bible. Bashan is the... name for the Golden Heights, and that's part of those mountain ranges. And then from the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee south, you have the mountains of Gilead, and then you go to the mountains of Moab, and finally the mountains of Mount Seir at the time Esau moves there, but when he arrives, they change the name of that piece of geography to Edom. So you have Mount Hermon, the Golan, you have Gilead, you have Moab, you have Edom. The five mountain ranges that come down the Rift Valley or the Jordan Valley. Esau and his family goes to live in that southernmost mountain range, Mount Seir, and they are headquartered in the city of Petra, which is uh, unbelievable. It's one of the seven wonders of the world even today. Before we leave chapter 36, let me show you one more verse. Chapter 36 and verse 12. And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz. 
Esau's son, and she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. And these are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. The grandson of Esau is Amalek. Keep it in your mind. Go to the book of Exodus, chapter 17, Exodus. Exodus 12, the children of Israel are going to be led by Moses out of the 400 years of bondage in Egypt into and towards the promised land. They get across the Red Sea. They're on their way to the promised land. They come to a place called Rephidim. There at Rephidim, there's a battle that goes on between the Amalekites and the Israelites. You might remember this from the Sunday school classes. That's when Moses stood up on the mountaintop, had the rod of God above his head. And as long as he held the rod of God above his head, the Israelites in the valley below would defeat the Amalekites. If he tired and dropped the rod below the top of his head, the Amalekites would defeat the Israelites. Aaron and Hur, his brother and best friend, were up there, and ultimately they held his arms up so that the rod of God would be above his head and the Israelites would win. Not all of the Amalekites were defeated, however, and they were able to escape. That's chapter 17, but before we leave chapter 17, let me show you something that the Lord told him to do. Look at verse 14, Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. This is the very first time somebody was told to write down history. And it's unfolding right here in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 15, uh, excuse me, verse 16. For he said, because of the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Notice that phrase. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel is the record of the first king of Israel. God appointed a prophet named Samuel to anoint Saul to be the king of Israel. What happened was that now God tells Samuel, I've got another message for Saul, and it relates back to that incident at Rephidim when the children of Israel were on their way towards the promised land. Look here in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel verse 1. Samuel said then unto Saul, The Lord hath sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Verse 3, here's the command from God through Samuel the prophet to King Saul. Now go and smite Amalek. And utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both the man and the woman, the infant and the suckling, the ox and the sheep, the camel and the ass. God tells Samuel, you tell Saul to kill all of the Amalekites. Kill the men, the women, the children. Kill the sucklings on their mother's breast. Kill all the animals. Kill every one of them. And Samuel said to King Saul, you understand the message? I do. Samuel leaves. A couple of days later, he comes back. He walks up to King Saul. King Saul, did you follow the command of God? I have. You killed all the Amalekites? I killed them all. The men, the women, I killed the men. You killed the sucklings on the mother? I killed the sucklings. You killed the animal? I killed all the... What's that noise? I don't know. Now, King Saul, let me ask you one more time. You killed all the Amalekites, the men and the women, yes. The sucklings on the mother's breast, yes. All the animals. I killed all that. Sounds like the bleeding of a sheep to me. I'm sorry. 
I didn't kill all the sheep. Some of them were without blemish and without spot. I thought we could use them to offer in sacrifice. Now, this will preach, guys. You know what Samuel said to King Saul? Better to be obedient than to offer sacrifice. And then Samuel said to King Saul, Did you kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites? And Saul said, No, I didn't. Why didn't you kill him? Because of his money. Because I thought we could use it for our purposes. You didn't kill him? Where is he? Get him over here to Gilgal. Gilgal's between the Jordan River and Jericho, where they encamped when they came into the promised land. And Samuel goes down and looks at Agag and says, give me that sword. He takes the sword from the king of the Amalekites, Agag. He said, this sword has made many mothers childless. Today, your mother's going to be childless. And he chopped Agag up into little pieces. You see, when God says to do something, he means to do it. You think I'm making that up? Go to verse 33. 1 Samuel 15, verse 33. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. God says to do it, you do it. Go over to the book of Esther. The book of Esther is the story, of course, of King Ahasuerus, who had a wife named Bashti. Bashti was a beautiful lady. King Ahasuerus wanted to bring all of his provincial leaders in. He had 127 provinces all the way between India and Spain. He wanted to have a special session. He wanted Bashti to perform for them. When Bashti heard this, she said, no way, King Epoo, am I going to perform for all of those men. By the way, that was the beginning of women's lib. <laughs> when this happened and the queen refused to do what the king said, Haman, his number one assistant, came to him and said, King, you got a problem. You got a wife that won't obey you. Now, what about the rest of your subjects? If she doesn't obey you, they'll quit obeying you. And so King Ahasuerus said, what do you think we're going to do? You depose her. You put her out of her position. You get another wife that will obey you. And so King Ahasuerus followed the advice. He then had a group of candidates, beautiful women, come by. One of them stepped around the corner. Her name was Esther. And he looked up at her and he said, I want that one to be my queen. One day, he didn't know this, but his wife was a Jew. Her cousin, Mordecai, was standing or seated there at the gate to the city. In walks Haman, number two in the kingdom. Everybody bows to Haman, but oh, Mordecai, this ticked off Haman. He looks over and says, hey, Haman, everybody bowed to me except you. He said, yeah, you're pretty perceptive. He said, I'm not going to bow to you. I don't bow to anybody except God. Haman goes into King Ahasuerus. He said, we got another problem. There's a Jew out there that won't bow to me. And so King Ahasuerus said, what do you think we ought to do? So I think we ought to write the law of the Medes and the Persians, kill all the Jews. And so King Ahasuerus wrote the law of the Medes and the Persians. And had it not been for Esther coming into the kingdom at such a time as that, all the Jews would have been wiped out. Now, you knew the story of Esther. I just wanted to remind you. Go to chapter 3 of the book of Esther. Let me show you something. Chapter 3 of the book of Esther, verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, notice, the son of Abadatha, the Agagite. 
Now, have you been paying attention to my history lesson? The son of Abadatha, the Agagite. That means that Haman was a descendant of Agag. Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who was fathered by Amalek, the grandson of Esau. And what did all these men want to do? Kill all of the Jews. Esau, Amalek, Agag, Haman. And Haman had a great, great, great grandson. His name, Herod the Great, an Edomite, who said, kill all those Jewish boys under two years of age. We'll get rid of the king of the Jews. That's the history. That is indeed the history of one of the brothers, the descendants of Esau. A history lesson tracing from Esau to Herod the Great at the time of Jesus. We see that Esau's descendants all wanted to eliminate the Jews from this earth. This conflict has been going on for 4,000 years and will only be resolved when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. That will be our study for next week. Please join us as we study the prophetic scenario for these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Across five crumbled cities in Turkey and Syria, the earthquake death toll is still rising. We now know as of last press time, over 20,000 people have died. Mike Patino, COO of Global Catalytic Ministries, says they have three teams in Turkey providing rescue support and emergency aid. They hope the Lord will use them to open disciple-making opportunities in a closed country. Pray for protection amidst trauma, both for quake survivors and first responders. And supporters from around the world gathered recently to applaud a Transworld Radio milestone. Forty-five years after its first radio broadcast, TWR India celebrates biblical content in 150 languages. More than a 1,000 people attended the get-together, including representatives from the 150 language groups. You can help TWR India begin the next chapter, Radio Home Groups. They're like small group Bible studies, but with audio. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And you know, Rick, sometimes I'm amazed at how God works things out. 
And on today's program, we did talk with Dr. Paul Weaver and the importance of Israel and understanding Israel's role from the past, the present, and the future. And uh, Dr. Weaver did a great job. Just so happens that on today's program, I have a good friend of mine, Paul Scharf. He's no stranger to those that have been listening to the program. Paul, welcome back to the program today. Thank you, Jimmy. It's uh, wonderful to be back with you. Yes, sir. And we've got a topic I want to talk about. But first, I want you to bring to light for us a conference that you're promoting in the future. Well, yes, Jimmy. Uh, the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry is hosting an online virtual Bible prophecy conference this coming month of March, March 10 and 11. The overall title of the conference is Unraveling the Mysteries of the Bible at lookupfoi.org. Lookupfoi.org. And Jimmy, I have uh, the real privilege of being a part of this conference, having a session, actually the very last session, and it's called Why Must There Be a Millennial Kingdom? And I offer five reasons biblically why I believe there must be a millennial kingdom to come, a premillennial return of Christ to rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Wow. Wow. Good stuff. I'm looking forward to watching it myself, and uh, I hope others will go to that website, lookupfoi.org, and you can sign up for this conference. Well, Paul, yes. the reason I had you on the program today, and we had talked about this, and, and you asked me to be a part of an article that you wrote. And the article is entitled Facing Replacement Theology. Replacement Theology yes. is Changing the Evangelical Church. You spoke with four evangelical leaders, which I was one of them, about how to handle this growing influence in the church. Tell us about it. Well, Jimmy, it was a real honor and privilege for me to uh, prepare this article for the current issue of Israel My Glory, January, February 23 issue. As you said, it's called Facing Replacement Theology, and the whole concept revolves around how do we deal with this growing influence of replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel or that it will in some way inherit the blessings God originally promised to Israel. In other words, that ultimately, to some degree or other, Israel will not literally be represented finally and fully in the way that a, a clear reading of the Old Testament tells us they are going to be. But the idea that somehow the church takes their place, that is sweeping across evangelicalism. Uh, although it's, it's an ancient teaching that's mm -hmm. been with us since the early days of the church, but it seems to be having an impact right now that is even broader than we've seen previously. And so it was my privilege to talk with not only you, but other great friends, Drs. Charles Dyer and James Fazio and Woodrow Kroll, and think about what's happening today with the growth of replacement theology and how do we as those who believe in the literal biblical future for Israel, how do we counteract this influence. Help us to understand, and let's get to the practical aspect of it. Maybe even define the phrase dispensationalism. Well, dispensationalism, Jimmy, is of course the idea that that God has, in, in his word, it's revealed progressively, and there are changes that come about not in the nature of God, but in the way that he is 
the things that he is requiring of his people. And we believe there is an Old Testament to people of Israel and a New Testament people of the church. And they are under different codes of law, if you will. And there are different requirements for each. There are, they, are, they each have a different nature and origin and destiny. And, uh, and there is a distinction, especially between Israel and the church. And God has a specific plan for each, and, and all of his plans will be literally fulfilled as written. And so the church doesn't replace Israel. It has a place alongside of Israel in, in God's eternal future and in the future in the millennial kingdom. Well, as we take a look at the book, help us to figure out the role that God has for them in the future. Yes, Jimmy, God has a tremendous uh, role outlined for the Jewish people. He will fulfill every promise he's ever given them, every prophecy mm -hmm. he's ever made for them. And uh, I know that earlier in the broadcast with Dr. Weaver, you looked at Romans 11, 26, that all Israel will be saved, mm. that at the return of Christ, the nation of Israel as constituted at that time will be saved and delivered and brought into the kingdom, and everyone will be a believer. And the Old Testament, or, or we might say the, the Hebrew Bible's mm -hmm. version of that verse is, Isaiah 4, verse 3, long before Romans was written, Isaiah the prophet said, It shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And so that's what we're really getting at, that God still does have that future plan for Israel. He will fulfill all of the covenants he has made with them. He'll give them a land. He'll give them descendants as the sands of the seas. He'll give them his uh, blessing, there'll be a blessing to the whole world, and you and the other men that I'm privileged to interview for this article, of course, all hold to and believe those precious truths. Yes. Well, that article can be found at foi.org, uh, or Israel My Glory, correct, Paul? Yes, people can go to foi.org, or they can go to specifically israelmyglory.org, and they can read that article, and they can even sign up for a free uh, opening subscription to the magazine. Well, I sure appreciate you joining with us today to help us to see a little bit clearer about the role of the Jewish people. And really, when you understand Bible prophecy, you have to understand and look at the Jewish people because God made those promises that you talked about. He's not finished with the Jewish people. He has a plan for them for the future. In fact, the tribulation period is really to bring them to an understanding that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And uh, yes. I sure appreciate you being with us here today, Paul. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jimmy. It's been great to be back with you. Folks, with everything that we've seen today, and with the understanding of God's plan for the Jewish people watching the Jewish state of Israel and understanding how things are coming to fruition, it can't be too far away. It could be even in the next instant that the rapture will take place. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 